January 31st, 2021, and you are listening to Sam Walking in the World. The fastest growing podcast on all of Knoll Top Terrace. As always, these are the thoughts of a guy who used to be unhappy, just trying to live like he wants to be when he dies. And I really am trying. Uh, I forgot to mention this is episode 47. Sam Walking in the World, episode 47. I'm very grateful to all of you. As always, and I'm thrilled as ever to hear you listening to the sound of my voice. Now, my introduction was a little choppy, I think, because my mind is so full of things I want to tell you. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> there's so much. Um, I'm going to do my best to not get worked up. Although I'm told sometimes I'm more entertaining when I am worked up. And maybe I do this because it works me up and it gets my blood flowing. I'm not even sure. So I'm not sure what temperament I will be in as I deliver this episode. But rest assured, I will tell you some things and how I think about them. Um, I have, uh, just to give you a quick review of what's coming up, I'm uh, in Stupid Things. I'm going to talk a little bit about an OCD check that I noticed of something I don't do anymore. I, I look back on it and I can't believe I did it. Like, What state was my mind in that allowed me to care about doing this thing that does nothing except cross a T or dot an I in my mind? Um, I'm going to talk quite a bit about um, the COVID vaccine and sociological questions that I believe ought to be raised and answered if they can be. And that will lead me into talking a little bit about um, some of the philosophy of Jordan B. Peterson. He's the man who wrote the book, 12 um, Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Um, he, he gained notoriety because he, was, he used to be the director of psychology at Harvard University. And then I think he more or less was run out of there because he was politically incorrect. He refused to use the compelled speech of the alternative um, gender pronouns. Uh, he was at the University of Toronto after Harvard, and that's where it really blew up. And he gained such YouTube fame that now he doesn't really even have to teach. I think he still is a professor at, at the University of Toronto, <clears throat> only because I think they as much as they disagree with him politically, I think they like his notoriety because it brings publicity to the school. I'm not even sure, really. But he's got another book coming out called Beyond Order. Um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of my feeling about his take on, um, on the Taoist principle of the relationship between order and chaos. And believe it or not, that does relate to the COVID vaccine. I'm going to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what the uh, what the uh, redditors, those on Reddit communicating on the internet, decided to do to the hedge funds as it relates to GameStop um, and AMC and a few other stocks. You probably already know all about that, though. But I, when I wrote the note, it, it was just burgeoning as a news story. So, but but I will say a little bit about it. Um, I'm going to talk <clears throat> a little bit about Jen Psaki. Again, she's the spokesperson for Joe Biden's administration and a little bit about what she said about walls, how they've, they've, um, they put a moratorium on, on the wall construction on the southern border. And she was asked about it. And I'll talk a little bit about what she said. 
I'm going to talk about Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev. The former Soviet leader gave a speech in 1959 um, in which he made a promise to the West. A very portentous promise, as it turns out. Um, and then uh, I, I looked up a few of uh, Margaret Thatcher's quotes, the former Prime Minister of Britain. And they are also relevant. So I'm going to get to all of that. First, I'm going to let Milky get it all together for me. And then I will be right back and I will begin... After this, stay with me. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 47. Now, it's amazing to me how over the course of the week, of all the things I've thought about, how the most important things, I guess, in my mind that I want to talk about all sort of melted together into one sort of topic. Um, and I'm going to get to that. It's got, It's kind of a, a mixture of covid vaccine theory, um, like I said, Jordan B. Peterson's idea of uh, the Taoist philosophy of living on the line between order and chaos, and current events as it relates to politics and all that. So it's kind of one giant ball, and I have no idea where I'm going to go. In my mind, I picture it like an atom with electrons flying around it all over the place, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to chase at which time but it, i guess it will all work itself out as everything always does before i get to that though i want to talk about something stupid i'm gonna um share an ocd realization that i made um for years <clears throat> i think like ever since getting my very first car which was a red ford escort um Way back in the day, this is probably like 1990, 1990 probably, I was 19 years old, 20 years old, uh, and it was a family car that eventually when my father got a new car, he let me have. I got to admit, my father really was good about allowing me and, and I think my siblings to, to greater and lesser degrees. <clears throat> um, kind of the freedom to enter the world and the the, the greatest <laughs> vehicle for doing that is your car when you're that age. You get to go out there. You can do some things in private um, that, that you can keep from other people if you want to because you have your car. You can move your car around and there's nobody else in your car but you. It's almost like a hiding place. It's almost like a mobile hiding place. But it's also obviously a vehicle for going places. So you can go places and people don't know where you are. At the time, this is way, way before cell phones. So I think everyone, when they got their first car, even if it wasn't really their own, but it was the one they got to drive all the time. Um, I think everyone understands that feeling. Um, I remember the first time I listened to the radio inside my car by myself. Like you go through that period where you have your permit. And there's someone else in the car. And so you haven't really crossed the threshold yet. You're still kind of in someone else's space under their supervision. I don't think I ever once went to a friend's house, dr drove to a friend's house with an adult inside the car um, watching me. Though I had my permit. But once I had my license, uh, I drove wherever I felt like driving. And I did whatever I felt like doing. At the time, it was all pretty tame. Hey, Cal, can you shut that door? And so, um, thank you. 
So, um, <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> what I, I think, I don't know if my OCD had come on full, full OCD until I think college. Um, I was an extremely diligent student in college. I was driven by a super ego, I guess, that was watching me all the time and I needed to become my own person in the world. I needed my education so I could get my job. And at that time, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a teacher. So I, I had begun this kind of path toward it and I knew I had to work hard. And the work paid off. I ended up doing very well in college and in, in my early teaching years. Um, I made the colossal mistake of going into special education at a time when there were immediate jobs available in a certain unnamed city school district. And I was even warned by the man under whom I taught English as a pre-service teacher. Uh, he, he encouraged me. And his name was Dr. Walter Feiberger. I remember, I'll remember him always. I'm not even sure if he's alive anymore, but he was a, a teacher at Fayetteville Manlius High School. And he was like, uh, I don't know. He was a mentor to me. He was almost like he's what I would now that I know more, what I would describe as almost an Ernest Hemingway type. He was a hunter and a fisherman. He played tennis, but he also taught me how to teach Othello, you know, and other Shakespeare plays. He anyway, he was just a magnificent man and he really set me on my course, but he warned me. He warned me. He said, take a substitute teaching job in our district, <clears throat> which is a suburban district, rather than going into an unnamed city school district and teaching special education. So don't do it. I've seen people who've done it. So honestly, I don't know whether I would do it again or not. It has brought me to this moment. Whenever I'm unsure about decisions I made in the past, I think, well, I'm here now. and There's not much I would trade about where I am right now or change. So it's really hard for me to question, you know, the butterfly effect and all. So, but I won't bore you anymore about that. I'm going to circle all the way back now to my car and my OCD. Around that time, I developed OCD. And I think it was just um, uh, what I considered myself to be uh, very attentive to details. I was a slave to details. I hear people say that all the time. I need to make sure you're there on time. I need to make sure that there's no spelling errors in this. Uh, you have to follow this three-step procedure exactly. You cannot deviate from it. Um, you know, make sure that you pay your bills on time. All of those things. And I had this unknown fear of what would happen if I didn't. And so I just wanted to avoid it. And so I was a slave to details. <clears throat> I have since, I think, become a master of that. I think it's much better to be a master of details than it is to be their slave. If I'm the master of the details, I can let some of them go if I want. I can decide to what degree it is important to follow through exactly on something. Um, I, I can notice when I'm beginning to follow through exactly on things for the sake of following through exactly on things. Not necessarily because they ought to be done. The enormous distinction, and I think the difference between being a slave to details and being their master. I tried to be their master, now I tried not to be their slave. But one thing I was a slave to was I always worried, this is going to sound nuts, and maybe some of you will relate. If you live in the Northeast, then it's always snowy, and you have snow on your feet, and it's, you know, wet, 
um, slush and stuff on your boots and you get in your car. Um, everyone, almost everyone I know has really good floor mats. So if you're from down south, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. You can just keep the floor mats that you originally that originally came with the car, those you know fabric ones, and that's enough for you. Maybe now and then it's raining and they get a little bit wet, but then it absorbs and it evaporates, and there's no big deal. In the Northeast, especially in uh, upstate New York, where we have lake effect snow coming across the Great Lakes and just generally inclement weather for about four months. Um, you need a quality floor mat. You need something that's made of rubber or plastic. It needs to make sure that no water can pass through it. Um, unless you don't care. Um, but like just the other day, I, I would say in the last week, I've probably had to move my driver's seat back, pick up my enormous heavy duty floor mat and and literally dump out of the pool of water that's in it onto the ground and then put it back. Probably do it every two days. I'm sure those of my local listeners can relate to this. Unless you just don't care. But I don't want to get my pant cuffs wet. I mean, you'd literally be standing in a, in a one and a half inch pool of water if you didn't dump it out regularly. Or you have to try and make sure that you don't have any moisture, you know, heavy moisture on your shoes or boots when you get in your car. So you got to do the thing where you where you sit down and then swirl your feet, keep your feet outside the car, and then bang your feet together to try and get everything off of them or bang them against the bottom of your car as you're getting in. And that's just a pain. Now, I used to do that too. I, I, I took every single precaution. I wanted to I wanted to make absolutely sure that no water was leaking, you know, was soaking into my floorboard. Because I thought, well, that will get into the steel, it will create rust, and then the bottom of my car will rust out. I've actually seen people whose bottoms have rusted out, and they've, like, bolted in wooden, you know, plywood underneath their car. It always made me think of the Flintstones, like if you could put your feet all the way through the bottom of your car. In the Northeast, it is not that far-fetched for maybe a 20-year-old car to have the floor just be rusted out. And at the time, why did I think I needed my car to last 20 years? I think at the time because, as, as is a route to my OCD, the idea that I wanted everything to last forever. And um, I think because I wanted me to last forever. And I was not really confronting my own mortality. As odd and philosophically obscure as an abstract as that sounds, I honestly think that is one of the roots of my OCD that I was not thinking about the fact that this whole life is finite. Not just my car and its floorboards, but everything. So, <clears throat> at the time, in my mindset, not only did I have a heavy-duty floor mat, I had plastic bags, like garbage bags, layered underneath. I would literally, this would be the layers of my floorboard. I would have the original felt bottom of the floorboard, I mean, yeah, floorboard, I guess you could call it. Then I would put maybe two to three layers of plastic bags all surrounding the bottom. Then I would put down the factory issue floor mats, which are kind of like kind of like light fabric. You know, they're, they're like felt almost, but thicker than that, I guess. And, and with a little bit of leather maybe on the top and bottom. Put those down. 
And then I would get the one that I bought from the auto parts store that's like half an inch thick and rubber and it's got like those channels in it, like irrigation channels so the water can can kind of go a little bit lower than your feet, like the way maybe grading in the shower would be so that when the water will sink below that rubber level so it's not right against your feet and your pants, cuffs and stuff. <laughs> and I still would be afraid that there'd be too much water getting into the bottom and then my floorboard would rust out. Is that not nuts? Is that not nuts? It is nuts. I don't know why I shared all that with you, but I guess it felt good to get it out. I'm not like that anymore. I do still have the heavy-duty floor mat, and I do still dump out, dump it out of water, but I get into my car without kicking my boots, and I frankly don't really care what happens to the bottom of the floorboards, but then I might want another car anyway. And I've become an A to B car guy. That's why I like Jeeps. It's okay if they're banged up. doesn't matter. Not that it would matter if any car was banged up, but I don't know. i got to stop myself down this line because I'll never stop. I'm going to take a quick break and take a Valium. No, I'm not really going to, but I will try to relax to the equivalent of having taken a Valium. And I'll be back after this to talk about that giant ball of stuff that I mentioned. I'll be back after this. Stay with me. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 47. I sincerely apologize for that rant. I really had no idea it was going there, but thank you. You are, in, in addition to being my audience, you are my therapists. So thank you for listening quietly. <clears throat> and before I get on um, onto the, the big things, I wanted to also mention, I want to give you an update on my, um, on my gradually decreasing obesity. Um, I know that I was keeping you involved in my weight loss and my fitness uh, over the past 46 episodes, and I haven't mentioned it in a while. And so I just wanted to take this chance to give you a status update. My progress has continued, I'm pleased to say. Uh, whatever my, uh, my nutrition plan is, which seems to emerge as I go, but Seems to be working. I appear to have adequate energy in order to get the exercise I need, both between my swimming and my hiking. And um, I am happy to say that um, I am down from about 250 pounds to about 189 pounds. 89, 90, 91, depending on the day. And my waist has gone from... 50 inches, maybe 49 and a half inches, down to 37 inches. Now, I still have a ways to go, but boy, when I look at pictures of myself from when I was, I would say, about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> and like I said, it's not entirely my fault. I, I had two completely eroded hips, and uh, when I got new hips, everything began to change. But a lot else had to change in my mind, mainly. In my soul, I think if you'll allow me to say that. So anyway, let me get on to this now. Um, okay, I don't even know where to begin. I think I'll start with this. One of the things that's been on my mind a lot lately is the COVID vaccine. Now, I've been once vaccinated about three and a half weeks ago, and uh, this coming Friday, I will receive my second vaccine and be as fully vaccinated as a person can be. Now, the question is, 
How fully is that? And what does it mean? Um, first, I guess the medical question is, well, not even medical. The biggest question I have is this. When can I stop wearing my mask? I loathe my mask. Breathing my own recycled air really close to my face. Smelling my own breath. Having to pull the strings of the mask up around my ears. Lifting up my winter hat. Putting them on. Having to pull my winter hat back down. Then adjusting the mask. A mask that they can't even say for sure does anything. It's not the M95. It's just basically a thick piece of paper. And, um... And it's still inconclusive as to whether or not the mask actually does anything. But people say, err on the side of caution. It can only help. So I I thought, okay. And part of it at the beginning, and and maybe through the middle of this, was the idea that I might get COVID and I didn't want to. Or that I might get COVID, not know it, and give it to other people who might be able to get sick. Especially people that are older people that have underlying conditions, of whom I know many, and whom I would like to protect. Some of my best friends are in that category. Many of you are in that category, I'm sure. Um, And so I continued to wear the mask. Wear the mask. It sounds so ominous. It's like Bane from uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. No one cared who I was until I put on the mask. Anyway... So I wore the mask, and now I want to know when I don't have to wear it anymore. And it gets very interesting here. So first, let me talk about the medical side of it, the scientific side. We're supposed to follow the science, right? So I thought to myself, after vaccination, how long do I need to wear the mask? So after Friday. Now, obviously, sometimes it's not a medical question. It's a professional question. I must wear the mask in places where my employer mandates it. Otherwise, actually, I don't have to, but then I can be fired and I don't have to work there. I want to work there, so I will follow the guidelines, sometimes not as closely as I should. I get in trouble a lot. Uh, (laughs) Again, back to the line between order and chaos. But I at least try to follow those mandates because I don't want to lose my job. But that's not a medical question. That's someone else's idea of the medicine, and they get to decide whether I'm employed there. They get to decide the procedures. And for anyone that thinks that they should not wear their mask in a place where it's mandated, um, I think you're a fool. But that's on you. I'm talking about the gray area places. Like like at Wegmans, I, I think I've mentioned this before, one of my students is a cashier, a checker at Wegmans, which is, for those of you that aren't local, a grocery store. Um, I don't know what yours are, where you are. I've even forgotten when I spent some time in Texas. They have their version of Wegmans, and everyone around there knows what they're called. Just your regional big grocery store. Uh, Well, ours is called Wegmans. And this girl is a checker there, and she said they they do not kick out or prevent the entry of people who are not wearing masks. They look at them funny. They glare at them as do other customers. And they also will check them out. So you can go through the line, pay for your stuff, get it put in bags, 
and walk out without a mask. So you can do the whole grocery shopping thing, at least at my grocery store, without wearing a mask. Now, you have to take some social uh, ostracization, I guess. Um, but that is a gray area where you have to manage all of those considerations. And now, I would not not wear a mask if I were not vaccinated. But once twice vaccinated, and I thought to myself, well, what if they knew I was twice vaccinated? Like, What if I, I put my my vaccination card on a lanyard and wore it outside my jacket, like an ID badge that says, I've been twice vaccinated. You don't need to worry about it. Although some people might worry about it anyway. And I got thinking about what is the science behind the risk that you have of getting and spreading COVID after you've been fully vaccinated. So I did some research on it. Um, the CDC, I went right to the CDC website. Uh, and I looked first, first I looked at what is their, um, what is their idea of what herd immunity would be? Like what percent of people must be fully vaccinated in order for them to consider there to be herd immunity? At which time I would guess we could not wear our masks. And those that were on the extreme edge of vulnerability might have to just protect themselves so the world could move on. And I have to say thank you very much to the companies that produced the vaccine and the administration that was uh, in power at the time that either helped make it happen or allowed it to happen, whatever it is, that correlation between whoever the president is and their blame they get for anything that goes wrong and the credit they get for anything that goes good, goes well. Um, and Trump called it warp speed. I know a lot of people that are Biden people don't give him any credit for that at all. Like the vaccine happened in spite of him. And now that the vaccine's here and Biden is president, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that if Biden was the president during the time the vaccine was generated, and I'm not saying it would have taken longer, he might have done just as good a job, but they would be calling it the Biden vaccine. They would not have been calling it the Biden virus, as many were calling it the Trump virus. But I don't want to get that political yet, which I already have anyway, so whatever. So the CDC has no specific percent of what what percent of people would have to be immunized in order to be, I mean, vaccinated in order to be have herd immunity. They don't know. They don't know what the percent would be. They say they're, they're, they don't have enough data. <clears throat> so I guess we're waiting for data. But the answer there is they don't know. And then I thought, well, what is the chance of me spreading COVID after I'm fully vaccinated? I would like to know. So I, I looked it up. According to the CDC, when the question is asked, is there any chance of spreading COVID after full vaccination? Their answer is, now listen very carefully to this. Because it's where the, the medical path crosses the political path. Is there a chance of spreading COVID after full vaccination? Their answer is yes. Then, this is a direct quote, yes. Not enough information is currently available to say if or when CDC will stop recommending that people wear masks and avoid close contact with others to help prevent the spread of the virus that causes COVID-19. So yes, you should keep wearing a mask, but there's not enough information available to say, and not, not that there will be herd immunity or that it will be safe, 
but there's not enough information to say when they'll stop recommending it. It sounds to me like a little bit of a rabbit hole. I'll say it again. Uh, this quote, yes, not enough information is currently available to say if or when the CDC will stop recommending that people wear masks. So I guess they have to gather some information and then use that information to decide when they're going to stop recommending it. Not decide that there's herd immunity, but decide when to stop recommending it. So ultimately, it almost comes down to when the authority decides that to tell us it's okay and then we can all do it. But that doesn't really speak to the risk. You know, it doesn't say they'll have enough information to say for sure, yes, you can go around with you if you've been vaccinated, you can go around and, and not risk spreading. It doesn't say that. It says there's not enough information to decide when they're going to tell us we can't. So in other words, they don't know. No data or not enough. So my question then is, how long do we wait until there is enough data? How long do we wait if there continues to not be enough data? I'm just asking. And then I started thinking about it. And I thought, you know, when you talk to people about it, this is almost where it gets troublesome for me. And it kind of irks me a little bit. And that is... There are people who say it's always safer to wear a mask anyway, which it, it might be. I mean, we don't even know if the masks do anything, but let's just say everyone had their own N95, the ones that actually do prevent acquisition and transition, transmission of it. If everyone had an M95, the people that say, well, it's safer to, it's always safer to do it, wear it. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt to wear it. Right? If you had to decide if you're not wearing it, wearing it, obviously wearing it no, wouldn't hurt. can only help. And then there are people that say, we need to be 100% sure that you can't spread it if you've been vaccinated. And that it's safe to go around without a mask once you've been fully vaccinated. You need to be 100% sure. And it got me thinking about what is ever 100% sure. You cannot be 100% sure that you won't get in a car accident, a deadly one. You can't be 100% sure that your plane won't crash. Um, you can't be 100% sure that you might walk out in the street and get hit by a bus. You can't be 100% sure you won't be mugged walking down the street. You can't be 100% sure that that a shooter might show up where you are and shoot everybody can't be 100% sure of anything. If that's the marker we use to decide whether or not to take risk, then essentially what we said is we want to live a risk-free life. And that got me thinking about what would be the point of that. I'm going to continue. I'm going to take a quick break before I get to um, a medical study done by the University of Alabama, Birmingham. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the medical um, research of it, just so that I'm, I have a, my feet planted on the ground when I talk about this. I'm going to talk about more of this right after this. 
Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 47. I will continue. So, Paul Gofert is the man's name. G-O-E-P-F-E-R-T. MD, professor with the University of Alabama, Birmingham Division of Infectious Diseases, says... He says the bottom line is that the vaccine most likely does not prevent the spread of the virus, but probably does reduce the length of time a person sheds the virus. So apparently there is a length of time after being fully vaccinated that you can no longer even spread it. Because I guess the, the, the theory is, or maybe it is the, maybe it's the actual medicine says that you can, even if you yourself are fully vaccinated, which means that you can acquire the virus and it does nothing to your body. But, but I guess you can, you can have it and it does nothing to your body because your body has developed antibodies due to the vaccine. But for a period of time, not infinitum, but for a period of time, you still have the... Uh, um, possibility, I suppose, of, of spreading the vaccine to somebody, I mean the virus, to somebody else. Now the question is, how long? And is it forever? Because if it's forever, then I guess we should we should wear masks, that well, paper masks that do nothing. But let's just say the hypothetical, if we all had M95s, we should wear the masks until every single person has the vaccine and is fully vaccinated. Except the question then is the vaccine only promises 98% immunity. So even after every single thing that could possibly be done, 100% will never be achieved. It'll still be 98%. So we'll talk about that 2% and what that means in a minute. <clears throat> First, let's dig a little bit deeper into uh, the the likelihood of a person fully vaccinated transmitting the disease, carrying it, transmitting. So the question was, can a fully vaccinated person who is subsequently exposed to the virus continue to pass that virus on to others? This is right from the study. Dr. Gobert, Gofert says, in theory, the vaccine helps the body develop antibodies to fight off an infection. But while this is happening, the vaccine vaccinated person who was exposed to the virus could still be infectious to others, similarly to the flu. That, and this is the quote, that is still unknown for COVID, he says. Unknown if you can transmit it once you've been vaccinated. Animal data suggests that a COVID vaccine decreases the amount of time for viral shedding. That's what it's called, viral shedding, when you yourself are not affected by it, but you still are able to pass it to someone else. The COVID vaccine decreases the amount of time for viral shedding to four days in animal studies. But during that time, the animal or person would still be infectious. Simply put, the vaccine does not kill or destroy the virus if you are exposed. It simply trains your body to successfully fight off the virus so you do not get sick. Covert continues to say that with that being correct, it seems reasonable that a vaccinated person could continue to spread the virus. I'm going to read that sentence again, just because it's loaded. That being correct, when he says that, he means that in studies, once 
fully vaccinated, there's a period of about four days, according to the animal research, that you might still be able to spread it. Four days, not infinitum, which those in real Linda, that means forever. So it seems reasonable that a vaccinated person could continue to spread the virus. It seems reasonable. So in other words, kind of possible within the realm of reason that it could happen. It's reasonable that it could happen. Now, again, that makes me want to ask the question, what else reasonably could happen? And you can fill the blank in yourself. So he continues on to say this has ramifications for continued mask wearing and social distancing even after large numbers of people have been vaccinated. Because of this, UAB medical experts, again, it goes to the experts now, experts advise with the extremely limited slash no data that they have proving any of this. So without knowing themselves, Experts advise that if your employer or institution offers testing, you should keep getting testing. Tested. I, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. The key is they don't know. And how far do we have to go until we are certain before we can move on with our lives mask-free? And then this is the end of the, the quote from the study. It says, we only know that the vaccine prevents against getting sick with COVID, he said. We don't know if it prevents spread. So it might. Okay, It's important to say clearly, we don't know. We know that it kills the virus in you. doesn't allow you to get sick from it. But we don't know if it prevents spread. So it could, in other words, just as likely be reasonable that it stops the spread of the virus after four days. Just as likely as that it doesn't. And so the final thing he says is, my suspicion is that it will significantly reduce spread, although not completely. Again, completely, 100%. At least one study is hoping to look at the effect of vaccine and vaccine on asymptomatic spread. In other words, viral shedding. Until then, we need to wear a mask, even if vaccinated. He decides to throw in at the end. We don't know, but you have to keep wearing a mask until we're absolutely sure. If we'll ever be absolutely sure. If we're ever absolutely sure of anything. Now, I might sound to you like I'm just being contrary. And there is a part of me that is contrary. You say yes, my my reflex is to say no. But I don't think I'm doing that here. Because I am continuing to wear the mask. But I am openly contemplating the idea of when... I cannot. There are many people who aren't. There are people, some people will say, for five years, you have to wear the mask. And and, and that's the funny thing is they say, you have to wear the mask. They don't say, for five years, I'm going to continue wearing the mask just to be safe. I need to be 100% sure. They say, you must be. That's where the scientific and medical crosses the political. And that's where I begin to ask important questions. And so that, all of that kind of brings me to Jordan B. Peterson's take on the Taoist philosophy of living on the line between order and chaos, which also is connected to the origins of my OCD, which is 
I want everything to last forever. Forgetting. Forgetting that I'm not going to. What good is having my floorboards never rust out? 100% sure my floorboards never rust out. My car will last forever. Except I won't be there to drive it because I'm going to die. And so are you. I think we forget that. And I, I think... I, you know how I say sometimes I have to find a way to capture something so that I can put it away? This is something that I believe was true. Is true. I think in the past I was living half pretending that I was never going to die. I mean, I kind of always knew I was going to, but I was sort of, and tell me if you're like this, I was sort of half pretending that I was never going to die. And reflecting on it now, now that I'm happy, now that I am in the state of mind I'm in, call it whatever you want, insanity probably, but whatever it is, um, I know for sure I was living half pretending that I was never going to die. And I can reflect on that time now and say, I think, <clears throat> I think I was only half living for real. I was only half living for real. I was living half pretending I was never going to die. And I was only half living for real. And that brings me to the line between order and chaos. I will continue. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of make a new start here in the episode um, because I want to go into this um, a little bit more deeply and I want to make sure that there's a break for everyone to take a breath before I continue. Thank you very much for staying with me. I'll be back right after this. What's up, Milky? Milky's got a mask on right now. Now he doesn't. Now he does. Now he's messing with me. Be back after this. <laughs> Milky, you're nuts. <laughs> Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 47. It has been a wild one so far, has it not? Why did I always feel the need to color inside the lines? I mean, I took pride in my coloring. I remember it. I was like seven. I had to make sure that I colored inside the lines. I would, I would get a new sheet. I would throw a sheet away if I went outside the lines. I was allowed to go, say for example, I had a green crayon and I was coloring inside something. Um, I would allow myself to get onto the line. Like, usually it was a black line, black, you know, drawing that you would color inside. And I would, it was pretty bold black. So, like, it would usually, you wouldn't be able to see the crayon marking if you colored on the line. But I didn't even take that chance. I liked the nice, thick, black highlight outside of my perfect coloring. And now, I feel like I have this incredible impulse as I get closer to the line and I'm making it nice and I'm coloring it in. I just want to yank my arm across the line. I don't know why. And I think that Jordan B. Peterson explains it in a way that makes me feel a little bit less insane about it. I don't know if you feel an urge to color outside the lines. It changes the picture. Some would say it wrecks the picture. But I don't know. 
So I'm going to play for you one minute um, of Jordan Peterson very briefly. It's, it goes it goes into great detail in his book, which I highly recommend, 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. Um, he, he, he briefly explains it, but w what you need to know before is that it, this comes from ancient Eastern philosophy, Taoism. And it is... I don't know if you, you've probably seen it many times. I'm not sure. I saw it many times. I didn't know exactly what it meant or what it was. But everyone has seen the yin-yang. And it's not yin-yang. It's yin. Yin-yang. Um, everyone's seen that image. Uh, it's the circle that's got the swirly black on one side and the swirly white on the other. But there's a dot inside the black, a white dot inside the black, and a black dot inside the white. And originally it came from the two serpents enmeshed. The Taoist symbol is two serpents in the shape of the yin and yang enmeshed together. And the eye of one of the serpents is black, the white one. And the black serpent has a white eye. And there's a line between them in the middle where the swirl goes through the middle of the circle. And the, the Taoist idea is that the best life is lived on that line. Not completely living as one serpent and not completely living as the other serpent. But living on the line in between. And, and Jordan Peterson does a much better job of succinctly describing it. So if you bear with me, I'm going to play that for you for a moment. Here he is. In order for people to live a full life, they have to have a foot in order. And that order has to be commensurate with what it is that they're attempting. So their lives are properly ordered if they have goals and the, the procedures they put in place to attain those goals are working. That gives them security and hope. They also have to have a foot in chaos because part of proper being is not merely security, which is what order provides, but also the continual generative excitement that being on the edge allows. And the edge, which everyone knows about, is the edge between order and chaos. And you can tell you're there because that's when life is worth living. Surfing was was sacred to the Hawaiians because the Hawaiians could see that when a surfer mastered a wave, he was physically embodying the balance between order and chaos. The rule is you have to confront chaos and make it back into order. And you must do that because otherwise your life becomes unbearable. And that is that. Um... Oops, sorry about that. <laughs> but I think that captures that. What point is is there in living a purely secure life? Jack London, uh, is that his name, Jack London? Yeah, I think it is. He said that that the purpose of man is to live, not to exist. The purpose is to live, not exist. Because if your purpose is just to exist, it is unattainable. Right? You're going to not exist at some point. You're going to die. So if the purpose of your life is to exist, the closer you get to the end of it, the more of a failure you're going to feel like. You're going to see the impending failure of your purpose coming. You will have succeeded in existing until you fail. Living 
on the other hand, is existing on that line between order and chaos. And I just, I, I feel like that explains to me the compulsion that I have to not keep both feet planted in order. You know, I, I've said it before. It's always a balance. Like I used to, I used to, um, I used to be amazed at how hard my father worked. And I always compared it to the, the board game, the children's board game, Shoots and Ladders. My father knew how to climb ladders. He taught me how to climb ladders. But I never saw him go down chutes. Very rarely. And, and it occurred to me that he was, he was climbing ladders because that's where he found security purpose in the climbing but but I, I as I've gotten older I've started to realize that what is the point of climbing the ladders if you're not going to go down the chutes that's what keeps you in balance that's what keeps you on the board if you keep climbing ladders eventually you run out of board you can just line like I've said before you can just line another board up after that or just draw a line in the carpet and move the board up above it so you can continue climbing ladders doesn't make any sense and i think it's it's for people who have yet to confront the fact that they're going to die and then it begs the question is is this all there is to life it makes you wonder about a god and i think the earlier you confront the notion of your mortality this Oh, man, I'm really pushing it. My dog wants to go for a you-know-what. Pretty soon she's going to know what I mean by you-know-what. I'm going to have to spell that. So I will keep this brief out of respect for the dog. Um, I, I feel like it's it's as it comes back all the way around to this COVID thing, I feel like it's important for us to remember that there is never going to be perfect certainty in anything. And, and that the, if it's always better to err on the side of caution, we might as well not go do anything. And I can't get myself to do that. Now, I don't want to be reckless. I don't want this to be misunderstood. And I know there are people out there that are thinking, you know what? You're going to get what you deserve. And that's what leads me to this. Margaret Thatcher said two things that are very, very um, prescient and um and they kind of speak to both sides of this. So this is this is how I will leave you. Margaret Thatcher said this. When people are free to choose, they choose freedom. In other words, when we don't know enough information, there isn't enough data to say whether or not we should continue to be this cautious. When people are free to choose, apparently at Wegmans, they choose freedom. But she also said... If you want to cut your own throat, don't to come, don't come to me for a bandage. And I will leave you with that thought. Thank you as always for listening. I really do appreciate it sincerely. And I know there is more to come. So I will see you next time.